0: Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15 will be our sermon text for this morning. And I should say, kind of by way of reminder, probably for some of you at least, that uh, if you remember, we started the book of Genesis… Uh, I don't know when, a year and a half ago, maybe. And we, we looked at Genesis 1 through 11, and then we paused there, and then we turned to John, and uh, we're looking at John 1 through 5, so this chapter, and, and then we'll go back to Genesis, and we'll look at the Abraham story, and then we'll come back to John and look at the next uh, six chapters, and then we'll go back to Genesis and back and forth until they're both done. Uh, and the idea there is, because I take so long to get through any given book, if we just did Genesis or John, we'd be in it for like two, three years, and uh, we, we want to we we get kind of a, an even uh, measure of Old and New Testament, so we're going to bounce back and forth between Genesis and John for a little bit. So, uh, I say that because we have uh, three sermons in uh, John 5, I think three, three sermons in John 5, and then we'll be back in the book of Genesis, uh, picking up at Genesis Twelve, I think. Although I'm not, there might be a few verses at the end of Genesis 11 that we haven't looked at. So, um, so that's just FYI. But for this morning, we're in John 5, uh, verses 1 through 15. And before I read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, thank you for your Word. We thank you uh, for, as as was prayed earlier, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together. Uh, of of being able to to gather as your people in your presence uh, on your day to celebrate uh, your victory in the gospel. And we pray, Father, that uh, you would be with us now, that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would uh, give us minds to understand, ears to hear, uh, hearts to believe everything that you have in your word. We pray that you would uh, guide my lips, guide my words, uh, help me to speak what is true and right and good, and help us to receive what is true and right and good in a way that uh, brings glory to you, but also uh, is edifying to each one of us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit to those ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Do you want to be well? It's kind of a bold question. Uh, Jesus asked it of a lame man, someone who had been sick for 38 years. It it could actually seem uh, cold or uncaring, Uh, asking someone who seems trapped if they want to be free. Is Jesus testing him? Uh, What is he getting at? We, we might speculate that the man had gotten comfortable with his old life. It's not perfect, but it was his. Uh, we're like that sometimes, right? We, we don't want to be made well. We, we like our life in sin. Even our suffering does something for us, even if our sin and suffering also make us miserable. Maybe they give us an identity. Maybe they give us an excuse, but we don't know uh, if this man was comfortable in his situation or, or wanted to stay there. That's speculation. Uh, all we have is a question and a response. How would you respond? Let's say you are suffering in some way, and, and it's been going on for years. Maybe you have some relationships that have been broken for decades, and you wish they could be made right. Uh, maybe you're stuck in financial poverty, or, or maybe you are in bad health in some way. Maybe you are, are suffering or struggling, and if, if someone asked you, Do you want to change? Do you really want to change? How would you respond? Often the response would be something like, Well, the doctors have tried everything. Or, or, Well, I'm not the one who cut off the relationship in the first place. Or, Well, I just can't seem to get the right job. I just can't seem to get the break I need. Rather than saying yes or no, we skirt the question and give reasons. We explain why we cannot change, rather than talking about our desire to change. Maybe talking about the desire is too hard when there's no hope. To say yes, I want to change, even after 38 years, is too painful. It's a reminder of what hasn't changed and a reminder of what is So, we're going to talk about hope this morning. And I'm going to ask just three questions Uh, Are you hopeless? Why are you hopeless? And where is hope found? Uh, So, first question Are you hopeless? Uh, What what does hopelessness look like? Uh, It it looks like the man in our story, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus had headed back to Jerusalem. Uh, The the gospel stories, by the way, are a kind of ping pong of Jesus going from Galilee uh, in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And John tells us that in Jerusalem, by uh, a gate called the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called Bethesda. Uh, This pool is well known uh, by archaeologists today. They can show you the gate and the pool and even the five colonnades around it. Uh, it's in the modern-day Muslim quarter of Jerusalem, uh, just north of the Temple Mount, uh, near what today is called not the Sheep Gate, but the Lion's Gate. Uh, in Jesus' day, uh, surrounding this pool uh, lay, John tells us, a multitude of invalids. Uh, verse 3 says, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. And One man in particular had been an invalid for 38 years. What does hopelessness look like? It it looks like 38 years with no change. When asked if he wanted to be healed, the man did not answer the question directly, but simply said, I have no help, nobody to help, no one to care for me. Nothing is ever going to change. I have no hope. What about you? Are you hopeless? Uh, Where are you hopeless? Uh, Do you have things in your life about which you think, these things are never going to change, they will never get better, there is no one to help, I might as well give up. It's too late for things to really change. Do you sometimes lay in bed and think there's no reason to get up, no reason to get out of bed this morning, nothing really matters anyway? Are you hopeless? Well, if so, then the follow-up question is why, right? Why are you hopeless? I want us to think about this man's uh, hopelessness for a minute. Where, where does hopelessness come from? Uh, I would say hopelessness comes, and we'll see, hopelessness comes from, short, uh, from disappointment and short-sightedness. Uh, I, I would argue that this man is hopeless not because of his situation, but because of his interpretation of his situation. Uh, Paul Tripp often says, uh, we don't live by the facts of our circumstances, but by our interpretation of those facts. This man's interpretation is askew because he is focused in the wrong place. And so to figure out why uh, you might be hopeless, we can ask two more questions. The first is, are you focused on the powers of this age? And Jesus asks this man, do you want to be healed? And the man responds, sir or Lord, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. What's he doing there? Uh, He is giving the reason he cannot be healed. He implies whether I want to be healed or not is irrelevant. I cannot be healed because I have no one to put me into the water when it is stirred. Where is he focused? He's focused on two things. First, he's focused on people. Now, a Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, maybe one of the more famous passages in Ecclesiastes, that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And so it's, it's biblical, right, to, to seek help from your fellow man. But this lame man has no one, he says. And perhaps that is true. Uh, he, he doesn't have the help that comes from friends and family being at your side. You might wonder why that is. Uh, did, did he once have a family? Uh, have they all died? Have they given up on him? I mean, 38 years is a long time to struggle. Maybe, maybe they got tired of his complaints. Maybe they burned themselves out helping him. Maybe they just weren't very caring people in the first place. And at the first sign of difficulty, they split. We don't know. We just know that he's alone. And that could only make his suffering worse, sick and alone. But as good as it is to have someone by your side, Scripture encourages us not to, to trust in man. Why? Uh, Why is trusting in man so empty? Well, uh, Psalm 146 puts it like this, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Or Isaiah 2 says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And you see the the theme there, uh, people who have to breathe to survive don't last. Put your trust in them and someday you will be disappointed. Uh, Jeremiah 17 uh, puts it like this. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. See, if flesh is your strength, it will fail you. And these verses are not encouraging cynicism. I, I can be cynical sometimes, right? Everybody will fail you. Everybody will disappoint. Everybody will betray you or leave you or die. But these verses are not actually encouraging cynicism. They, they're encouraging realism. Now, I know that's what pessimists always say. But uh, let, let me put it this way. People might be your help but they cannot be your savior. If you look for people to be your savior, you will end up like this invalid without hope because you have no one to help and no one to save. Uh, This lame man was focused on people. I have no one to help and superstition. Uh, There was a belief that later scribes actually inserted into the text to explain what was going on here. You'll notice if you look closely that your text has no verse four. And, but uh, because as textual scholars realized this was a later addition, an explanation uh, for people comparing later Greek texts with earlier Greek texts, uh, they took it out and put it in your footnote. So at least in the ESV, it's there in a footnote. And, and that belief or that superstition uh, that, that made it in was this, that an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And whoever jumped in first after that angelic stirring was healed. Hence, this man's hopelessness. I have no one to put me into the water, right? If if life is a race and I'm lame, then I'm going to lose every time. And that's where this man is. Notice to what he was looking, human strength and superstition. And if you are looking to human strength and superstition, what are you left with when they fail? Nothing. No hope. But here's the thing, right? That the powers of this age cannot solve the problems of this age, the powers of this age, whatever they may be, right, physical strength or money or beauty or influence or learning or education or political power or military might, whatever, the powers of this age cannot solve the problems of this age. Uh, why not? Because the powers of this age partake of the problems of this age, right? They also are corrupted by the, the fallenness of this world. Um, you'll, you'll have to forgive this illustration, but uh, if you had an autonomous self-fixing robot and suddenly every program on his hard drive was corrupted, he could not fix that because his self-fixing program would also be corrupted. See, the powers of this age partake of the problems of this age. And when we look to the powers of this age to fix the problems of this age, we will be disappointed. And hopelessness comes from disappointment with that which we trust most. And where do you turn when life is hard, right? What, what, what do you look to for help in the midst of sin and suffering? Do you turn to people? Maybe it's your parents or your friends. Do you turn to the, the government? More legislation, more regulation. Do you turn to self-help books or gurus? Uh, do you turn to escapes, binge-watching, hobbies, pouring yourself into work or family life? None of those things are bad, by the way. They, they may even be a help, but they cannot be your savior, And if you look for them to be your savior, to make everything in life right, they will disappoint you. And hopelessness comes from that kind of disappointment. When you realize what you had trusted in to save, cannot save. And you're left alone with no one to put you in the water. You're left without hope. So first, are you focused on the powers of this age? And second, are you focused on the problems of this age? Uh, we're going to get to Jesus' words in verse 14, uh, see you are well, sin no more. We'll, we'll get to them in a minute. But they highlight uh, first what is a very common situation. When we are in the midst of our, our trouble, struggling with suffering of some kind, our world tends to shrink to the size of our suffering. This man's whole world had become his, his disability, and now he was well. And the temptation was to think that all his problems are solved but there is more to life. When we are in the midst of trouble, we focus on this moment. We become short-sighted. We cannot see beyond the pain. This moment feels like all there is. This moment is all that matters. And you can imagine what that does to your heart, right? If this is all there is, if there is nothing else, nothing more, nothing to come, then again, there is no hope. There's just me trapped in my problems. And now you may have different areas in your life. You, you may not be a generally hopeless person, but there might be areas where you think uh, nothing is ever going to change here. Maybe it's some suffering, maybe some sin, maybe it's some relative coming to know Jesus, maybe it's some friend growing out of some really annoying habit. And we can see that situation, but we can't see beyond it. We can't imagine anything different. We're focused on the present. We have no hope. And so hopelessness comes as we, as we focus in on the people and focus on the pain. Uh, it comes as we focus on the powers and the problems of this age. It comes as we experience disappointment with this age and fail to see beyond that disappointment to the age to come. And so are you hopeless? Right? That, that, that's a question only you can answer. Why are you hopeless? I would say if, if you are It's because you focused on people and focused on pain. You focused on the powers and the problems of this age. Which brings us to our last question, where is hope found? Scripture is clear where hope is found, isn't it? Uh, There are two possible places of refuge, the powers of this age and the Lord our God. It's almost a refrain as you read through the Old Testament, Psalm 118, 8 to 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. In which will you trust? When faced with enemies in the gate, where will you turn? Hezekiah encouraged his commanders. When the king of Assyria was at the gates, he said in Second Chronicles 32, he said, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. And he wasn't counting soldiers there. He goes on, he says, With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. See, there is an arm of flesh and there is the Lord our God. The powers of this age and the God who is over every age. And notice how we see him, this God, step into this man's situation in John 5. We see it in Jesus and his, in his compassion end in his confrontation. Uh, Jesus first comforts this man, and then he confronts him. Uh, First, Jesus' compassion. You know, whenever you see Jesus interact with people in the Gospels, it's always best to read slowly. Take time to notice how Jesus relates to people. When Jesus meets this man, notice what we are told in verse 6. In verse 6, we read, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And notice the first thing, right? Jesus saw him. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I know that doesn't sound profound, uh, but John didn't need to tell us that. John could have simply said there was, a, there was a man there and Jesus said to him, but John says Jesus saw him lying there. The way Jesus loves is by noticing people, by seeing them for who they are. The next phrase is, Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Now, how did Jesus know? You might say, well, he knew because he is God. How could he not know? That would be true. Uh, But in general, Jesus interacts with people in his humanity, man to man, as it were. And I think it's fair to say that Jesus knew he had been there a long time because he saw him. He, He looked at him. He noticed him. He could see his tattered clothes. He could see his weather-worn face. He could see the far-off look in his eyes, the hopelessness, the desperation. Jesus knew because Jesus saw, and Jesus saw because he loved. And this pattern of, of saw and knew is not unique to this passage. In fact, we see the same pattern in God during the Exodus. But how did he know the desperate situation of the people of Israel? He saw, and so he knew. The point is not that God is not omniscient, but to help us understand God's compassion, his knowing is put in human terms. And Jesus is his knowing put in human form. Jesus saw, and Jesus knew. And the same is true today, right? Jesus sees your trouble. Jesus knows your pain. He is not aloof, He is not unaware. He is not unobservant. He does not turn a blind eye to your difficulty. But his compassion goes even further in that Jesus sees and he knows and then he acts. Jesus asks the question. We've come back to again and again. Do you want to be healed? And the lame man gives his response. But notice there's no request there. The lame man doesn't seem to have any idea who Jesus is. There's no faith. There's no crying out just hopelessness. And into that, Jesus says in verses eight and nine, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus sees him, knows him, and acts to make him whole. This is the compassion of Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't say to each one of us, get up, take up your bed and walk. He doesn't promise uh, that all of our troubles will go away. He he doesn't promise that our every challenge will be overcome in this life. He doesn't promise our every sickness will be healed in this life. Paul's thorn in the flesh did not go away. Uh, Timothy's stomach ailments required medical attention. There is no promise of an easy, comfortable life. The point of this story, as we will see in the coming weeks, is, is about who Jesus is. He is the one who sees and knows and brings wholeness. He does that by seeing our condition in sin, knowing how dire that is, and coming into this age to die for sin in this age and to rise from the dead, bringing about the dawning of the age to come. Jesus suffered, of course, more than we can imagine on the cross. It wasn't an extended time like the 38 years of this lame man, but it was inexhaustible in its depth. He suffered the full wrath of the Father for sin. But that was not the end. There was a beyond the pain and there was a beyond because he didn't trust in the powers of this age. Jesus could have fought the Roman soldiers. He could have argued with the Jewish court. He could have compromised. He could have found a way out. But he didn't. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, First Peter 2, 23. He said to his father, not my will but yours be done. He said on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus trusted his father to deliver him. And he looked beyond the pain. He wasn't thinking, how can I make this stop? He wasn't thinking, all that matters is overcoming this opposition. He wasn't thinking, if I go to the cross, it's all over. He was thinking, your will be done. His great desire was to do the will of the one who sent him and to accomplish his work, the work of redemption. He was looking, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him. So Jesus had hope as he went to the cross and was rewarded for his obedience with the resurrection and the Holy Spirit which means he can now offer resurrection life to all who call on him. Uh, that, that, that's what the, this picture, uh, what we see in this picture when he says to this man, get up. Uh, the lame man getting up is a picture and a preview of us getting out of the grave on the last day. Now, that, that may seem like a stretch, but just keep reading in chapter 5. As Jesus and the Judean religious leaders argue over this healing, Jesus will say in John 5, uh, verse 20 to 21, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. See, the raising of this lame man is just a foretaste. It's just a picture It's just an appetizer of our resurrection from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And so, do you want hope? A look to the power of the Spirit and the resurrection to come. Not the powers of this age, the powers of the flesh, but the powers of the Spirit. Not the problems of this age, but the solution in the resurrection and the dawn of the age to come. Everything will not become easy in this life, but it will be put in context, and hope will begin to blossom. But Jesus not only brings comfort to this man, second, Jesus brings confrontation. And we'll come back to the controversy over the Sabbath that begins here next week. Uh, But look at verse 14. Jesus finds this man later in the temple and he says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus gives this once lame man a warning. Now here's what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying, stop sinning or else you'll get some greater disease. There's nothing in the passage to imply that it was the lame man's fault that he was lame. Uh, That was a false view of suffering, popular in Jesus' day, that Jesus outright rejected. No, the, the something worse is not some other disease, but judgment and death. Jesus is saying this, yes, you've been healed, your body has been made well, but don't so focus on the present that you forget about the future. Don't so focus on earthly things that you forget about the heavenly. And remember, that's what keeps happening in these stories as we see Jesus interact with people. As Jesus talks with people, he speaks of heavenly things, but they misunderstand him repeatedly because their minds are on earthly things. So Jesus says uh, to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus can't understand how one can get back in his mother's womb. Uh, Jesus says to the woman at the well, I have living water. And the Samaritan woman wants that water, so she doesn't have to keep coming out to the well. Jesus says uh, to his disciples that he has food to eat that the disciples don't know about. And they wonder who brought him Chick-fil-A. Consistently, people are focused on the present and the earthly And Jesus wants us to lift up our eyes. And so he says to this man, yes, your body is well, but you are more than a body. You are a human being who lives before the face of God. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Don't settle for a life of comfort in the here and now. Repent of sin, turn to Jesus, and find life, fullness of life, eternal life, resurrection life in him. Now, I don't know what you are going through. I I do know that Jesus can make all things new now and that Jesus will make all things new on the last day. I know that resurrection life has broken through, first in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and today, every time, the Holy Spirit works in us, bringing a foretaste of things to come. Put your hope not in the people and the powers of this age. If you put your hope in the people and the powers of this age, you will be disappointed If you focus on the pain and the problems of this age, you will miss the bigger picture. God is on the move. He is at work to bring life. Look to Jesus, trust in him, enter into that life, and you can have hope in a better day. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would give us hope in that day, in the resurrection to come. Uh, Give us hope in the work of Jesus, in his completed work on the cross, in that future work of resurrection, and even in his work presently by his spirit at work in us. Father, give us hope in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us to increase our hope, increase our faith, increase our hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.